Welcome to Leveling Playing Field, a podcast featuring women who work in sport. My name is Bobby Sue Doyle Hazard, your host, and welcome back. Thank you all for the really kind notes, the cupcakes, Gina, and, um, you know, messages about our one-year anniversary, which was last week. It's out of control that this has been going on for a year and I don't even know where to begin. Um, I'm just really grateful for all of you and I'm so happy to be able to provide you all with something that you find valuable, as I've mentioned many times. Um, And also just, again, I'll do this every time I miss a week, but thank you for your patience and with this time of year. Um, I'm really excited about this episode. And one of the reasons I am so excited about it is not just because of the person, because she's a freaking badass, but we kind of got a little deep in this one. And there are some emotional moments in it. So <laughs> be forewarned, it, uh, it kind of took me by surprise to be honest, in the moment. And I just left it all in because I think, um, I don't know, these things are important to show. Our guest is the one, the only Laura Oakman. You'll find her on the sidelines for the NFL on Fox and Westwood One's NFL national radio broadcasts. Um, She's covered more than 10 Super Bowls, hosted Olympic coverage in London, Sochi, and the Pyeongchang Games reported from multiple World Series and NBA and NHL championships, and has worked on a lot of different shows. Um, She began her broadcasting career as a sports reporter and anchor in Montgomery, Alabama, Chattanooga, Tennessee, and the Sports Channel in Chicago. Um, And she's been creating and developing her own content um, by starting her own company called LO Productions. Um, And she and her husband now have their own production company where they put together some really cool content. And she has been mentoring women in the industry for years now with her Galvanize program. Um, And we'll talk about that, but she is just a strong supporter of women in the industry. She's been through the ringer. She's experienced it all. She is just as classy and wise and hilarious as they come. Her dog is named Booya after uh, her dearly departed friend, Stuart Scott. And We have a couple of interesting things in common, and I take some very hard, (laughs) hard turns to get us back to uh, her career, but it's a really good conversation, y'all, and I'm really proud of this one. I hope you enjoy it, and yeah, now on to the interview with Laura Oakman. Hi, Laura. Hi, Bobby. How are you? I am great. I'm so glad we got to make this happen. We've been talking about this since the fall. Isn't that amazing? How is it? Like, it feels like we just started talking about it a minute ago, and that seems like eight years ago, but I'm so happy we're finally doing this. Same. And I uh, I still have those pictures from when, we, when you were at uh, one of the home games that uh, we had last season. So I'll have to add that to the uh, website post whenever I get around to that um again under that in a timing where i was just like sitting there in my head like was that 82 seasons ago no, right last season. it feels like i feel as though from like 
December to now, and we're in July, has been a hundred years and yet a month. All it's very discombobulating. Do you remember? I just remember being young and my mom always saying this and he, always hearing this from, you know, much older people back then, probably in their 30s, like really old people uh, <laughs> in their 30s and older and always saying, wait till you see what time does as you get older. Right. And, you know, and, and now I just I'm always amazed that I'm in that age a lot more than 30s. But it, it, you really see how that happens. And it doesn't matter when times are good, times are bad. It just moves so fast. It does. I mean, obviously, our frame of reference of time is is different than it was when we were younger, right? So that's why it does that. But I think like the world we live in right now, too, so much is always happening that you're like, I can't believe that was just Monday. Like That that was five days ago. Yeah. Three news cycles ago, which used to be three days or three weeks. But you're right. It's just you wake up kind of, I remember having a really tough time when I lived on Pacific time because waking up and checking social media or checking Twitter and feeling like, what did I miss? And before <laughs> that could have been like a text from a friend or, you know, an email from work. And now it's what's going on in this world that, you know, that it's already noon on the East, on the East coast. But, uh, but yeah, so that's from a worldview, but I hear you on the personal view. I, my husband and I, my very new husband and I just celebrated our year anniversary. And I'm saying to him the other day on the anniversary where I was like, I wish we could go back to our wedding. And he kind of gave me a look and I said not to do anything differently. Cause I know that's a lot of brides, you know, like, ah, oh, I wish I could redo that. I want to go back because I don't want to do a single thing differently. I just want to be, I want to relive it again. Yeah. I just want to be in that moment again. And I think that's, Getting older, that's what time's doing to me is, am I present every minute of it? Am I really soaking it in? The good times especially, but probably even more so the bad times. Am I gaining every lesson? Am I really stepping into this or am I just rushing through this afternoon uh, or trying to get rushed through this week and not taking stock of everything? You know, I love that you mentioned and and the not great things and like the lessons, because I think that are, I mean, this is going to go off a little bit on a tangent, but I think our, what's happening in our political climate right now, what's happening in our country right now is partially due to the fact that people are not remembering how things started in previous regimes in other countries. Um, and you know, and I know you've tweeted about this, which is the only reason why I would even, um, broach it, but, um, and we don't, I don't usually talk much politics on here, but I think that that's, you know, something that we always have to remember is that like, you have to remember those lessons, even if they seem really far removed, um, because otherwise we repeat things. It's in, and it's funny because that phrase used to be such an out there kind of cliche phrase. You know, history is doomed to repeat itself if, if you know, if the lessons haven't been learned. And now we are literally living in that. Uh, if if you haven't gone or anybody listening hasn't gone uh, in Los Angeles um, to the Museum of Tolerance, when we were moving from L.A. to Nashville, we kind of made our list of the last week of, OK, what haven't we done in L.A.? Let's make sure we're soaking this all in, you know, as we head out. And I had never been there. So my husband and I went, and this was right, you know, during 2016 and, and when all the rhetoric turned really ugly. Mm-hmm. And it's it's one of the most unsettling parts of a very unsettling, for all the right and wrong reasons, museum. 
is it drops you off basically in this exhibit and you are eavesdropping on a little cafe. And I can't remember if it's, you know, if it's a little German town or a little Austrian town, I can't remember the location and it doesn't really matter. But what happens is you're in the middle of this art exhibit and the spotlight hits different people at the, at the cafe and you're suddenly eavesdropping and it's uh, a waiter or it's two people, you know, from the, from the upper class sitting in, you know, enjoying some, some coffee or it's two, um, two janitors, you know, walking by and you're hearing the conversations they're having right before World War II. And it could have been right now in any cafe in any part of the, of the United States. It's the same conversations, the same fears, the same, the same um, pot stirring, you know, all of it, the same rhetoric. And that's what was so scary to me was you couldn't tell if it was 1930, whatever, or 2000, whatever, because it's the same stuff. That's interesting. I've never heard of it before. Um, you need to go their next L.A. trip. And I know you don't get time when you go on your trips, but it's it's an incredible museum, um, very much Holocaust centered, but mostly just a, it gets into the African-American plight, the, the Jews, um, you know, during the Holocaust plight. And just tolerance. Mm-hmm. And it's, it was a it was a wonderful time to go through it as it is right now to see how we are right in the middle of history. I'm going to have to link to that on the the website as my listeners laugh at me because nothing's up to date. But it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> it's fine. But this will be. <laughs> It'll get there. We are we are going with, you know, not letting perfection get in the way of good enough. Mm-hmm. Um I love it. <laughs> I, I just have to. Otherwise, nothing will get done and like I become paralyzed. So uh, I, I, I love that. And and how many of us who consider ourselves perfectionists would say that all of a sudden I sat here and went, oh, Lord, how many things haven't I done because it wasn't going to be perfect. And so I just never did it. That's a huge list. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Same. Uh, I could. How many times have I started training for something and then been like, oh, I dropped off. So I'm just going to not do it anymore. It's like, oh, I don't have to be in the same shape I was when I was 17. Isn't that true? Somebody said this once, and I think about this all the time. When we take pictures of ourselves, remember as you take it and you judge it, you know, as we're like right away, like, ah, my weight is off or, you know, my hair is this. I don't look, you know, my wrinkle is here. And they said, remember that that picture that you look at yourself right now, a year from now, you will go, I never looked better. And wherever you are in life. And and I'm so much more gentle on myself now that I heard that going when I'm at my, and I'm at times when I don't feel my best, but I'm at my fighting weight or, you know, whatever it is. But I always think, but next year when I look at this, I'm going to go, what was she thinking? She looked great. Yeah. And, you know, I, I'm, I guess I want to say I'm fortunate enough that I'm not exactly in front of a camera all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas, you know, you are. And, um, I know that that can, that can have a a big impact on, you know, your own self-confidence and, um, feelings of self-worth in, in your part of the industry in particular, um, that's a, a really tough space to be in. I don't know if, if social media was around when I got into this. You know, so, you know, as a 21 year old, 22 year old around, you know, 1992, whenever that was, I don't, I don't know what would have become of me. I really don't. I think I would have been a mess. Um, 
And I think I would have had no shot at gaining my sense of who I am, or it would have taken me a lot longer. And as I say that, my magic year was 40, you know, when I finally Mm -hmm. got to a great place um, of how I felt about myself. So I don't even know how much longer it would have taken. It's hard. And, And being on camera is hard, period. But back then, for people to critique your appearance, they would have to send a letter. And they did. But it just wasn't quite, you know, it wasn't so many, you know, that they they really had to take the time to talk about your hair, you know, and pay for the stamp. So, you know, you weren't getting quite as much mail. But um, I think about that all the time as I mentor all these young girls. And I just want to cry because I just think I don't know how I could have done that. I don't know how they are. Um, When I moved to Los Angeles as a young woman, I said the same thing where I was glad I moved to L.A. when I had a good sense of myself because to be on camera and to live in LA, I think that would have done a number on me also where looks just play such an important role. So I would say up until, I mean, not that long ago, you know, up or up until 40, that's the, the, the appearance stuff and my hair stuff and, you know, your makeup and all of that, what you're wearing really did paralyze me, but I'm at this great place right now of just I don't care. I really don't care. I, yeah, I, I really care about my, my quality of my content. I really care about what kind of reporter I am. I really care about what kind of person I am. I really care about the information I deliver. Um, to be right and and to be you know to have purpose behind it. And it's hard to care about the job you do when you're consumed with what your hair looks like. And I just really realize now how much brain power that took. Mm-hmm. for me to care so much about the appearance thing. It's, it's paralyzing. Um, your, well, let me back up a little bit. We jumped ahead and I didn't get to ask one of my favorite questions. And mm-hmm. I wanted to do that because I think you'll probably have a really interesting story. How did you fall in love with sport? Um, it's funny because I grew up in Chicago and there just wasn't that much have a, you know, like, oh my gosh, you're a girl, you know, sports. It's just in Chicago, it's on Sundays, you watch the bears and it wasn't like, are the boys watching? Are the girls watching? Or, you know, are you a Cubs fan or a White Sox fan? Oh, you're a girl. It was, well, you're a North side or a South side or so obviously. And so I think in Chicago, I grew up just loving sports. Um, I didn't play, but but was always a fan and always, always loved the stories and always loved the people behind it. And so I think I don't have an interesting story in terms of when it was, because I don't remember when I didn't love sports, but it was as soon as I knew I wanted to be a storyteller that probably took me to a whole different level of my passion for sports. When did that come about? I knew I wanted to be in journalism in high school because I just loved writing and I loved telling stories. I don't know if I really put a name on it until probably senior year of high school and going journalism. You know, that's that's where I'm going to get to tell these great stories. And then my first job was in Montgomery, Alabama, where I did sports during the weekend, uh, which was a big deal for, for a woman in sports then. And I was doing news during the week and I wanted to make sure which direction I wanted to go in because it was the Montgomery was the capital of Alabama. So I was very blessed, you know, got to cover the SEC and NASCAR and sports um, and news. I was covering a state capital and and politics all the time. 
And I really knew sports was my direction the first time I covered my first body and was at a crime scene and standing almost over a body. And there were a few reporters and a few police uh, police officers. And we were all standing around and kind of, you know, away from the body, but you could see the body as we were waiting um, and kind of still waiting on the information to happen. And everybody was standing there talking about what they were going to do Friday night because it was Friday night. So, you know, you stand around and you talk about what you're going to do. The only thing was we were standing, you know, right over a body. And I walked away to just sort of gather my thoughts. And uh, one of the police officers followed me very nicely and said, I don't want you to think we're callous. I, I want you to understand that this is eventually what happens for you to be in this business. You have to be able to stand over a body and talk about what you're going to do Friday night or else you're not cut out for this. Um, and I went home and did what, you know, what most 21 year olds so far away from home do, which I called my mom crying and going, I don't ever want to stand over a body and, and talk about what I'm doing on a Friday night. And I just knew sports was my direction. And at that time, sports was a break. It was, it was a break from the bodies. At that time, you got into sports because there was no better stories to tell and no better arc, you know, that you have that beginning, middle, end in a three hour period. You have these outstanding stories of triumph and of tragedy. Um, and then somewhere along the way, sports morphed into news and suddenly storytelling turned into domestic abuse and rape and, uh, and, and performance enhancing drugs. And, and now the line is blurred and I'm very thankful that I have a news background um, because nowadays you need both of those. Yeah, I can imagine that, um, particularly in the last five to 10 years, again, I think this just comes with how global everything has gotten, how news has, um, you know, the 24-hour news cycle, right? And um, things like TMZ and Twitter. And um, a lot of times, sports reporters aren't always educated on how to speak about um those tough issues, the, the, you know, sexual assault and violence and, and domestic violence and um, having that background has to be helpful. Yeah. And, and that's in life now. I mean, it, you absolutely need it as a reporter and I don't care fill in the blank before reporter, if you're a sports reporter, news reporter, entertainment reporter, political reporter, because there are no more lines, everything's blurred. And so you need that. But I think as a human being right now, going back to what we didn't want to talk about, but going <laughs> but going back to how do you not talk about it, right. which is what's going on in this world right now. I think all of us, you know, want to feel as educated as we can about these conversations to make sure we're not listening to anybody just, you know, just tell us, you know, I'm air quoting facts. And I think, again, that's, that's where I'm very grateful for journalism background because the biggest thing I've had to work on in 25 years is listening and gathering information and gathering facts and not doing it in a judging way or an accusatory way, but in a curiosity way. And, and I'm very thankful for that. Um, I don't care if I'm covering a news story, a sports story, if I'm sitting on an airplane, I'm curious. I, you know, I want to know your story. Um, what have you overcome? How did you do it? How do you think? How do you feel? And I think now more than ever, we need reporters like that, but we also just need human beings like that. I 100% agree. I mean, I think that people have become so siloed that it's almost hard for people to understand what other people's lives must be like. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and we, there isn't that learned empathy yeah. or compassion. Um, and, you know, like you said, on an airplane, just having a conversation, uh, how many people don't do that because whatever reason. Um, I know before we started recording, I said something about like, nah, I just hate everyone. I like to stay home. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, that's obviously not true because <laughs> why would I have a podcast? Um, <laughs> and just for anyone listening, it was really like, hey, it's a Friday night. Are you going to be home in pajamas or are you going to be out? And I'm like, no, I'm going to be home. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but you know, we, it is easy to everyone go to their corners and, and not really have that interaction. So, um, it's important, you're right on a humanity level to be able to interact with people that are different from us. I remember my mom saying, again, I was, my my mom passed away when I was young. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I was 22, 23. And so, um, it's almost like I got the first layer of education and and Lord, I wish she was around for a million reasons, but especially because I'd be on, you know, the 10th layer now of what I could learn from her. But I remember the first layer when I was a little girl of her always saying, the older you get, you're going to want to make people more complicated and they aren't. And I don't think I got past that first layer. And now I get it where you want to make it so complicated when you meet people or, you know, or, you know, how how people are or how they treat people, you know, all of that. And it's not, it's, I really look at it for me. My layer is now either you get it or you don't. It's really as simple to me as that. And I find when I was younger, I wanted to get cut everybody some slack. I wanted to give everybody a break. You know, I always wanted to say, but deep down in their heart. And now I don't care about deep down. Right. It's just, you know, who are you? And I find empathy is the magic word these days. And um, I guess on one hand, I'm so disappointed in people. And on the other hand, I'm so in love with people. You know, when you find people who get it, um, whatever it is for you, and it's different for other people, it's different for everybody. But, you know, when I find people who get my it, I can't, I can't get close enough fast enough. I can't, you know, I, I, I'm the same way you are. I'd rather be, you know, in my jammies on Friday night enjoying this rain. Um, but I absolutely love now going out and meeting new people because I think that's what this time has done for me, which is, um, I, exactly what you said. I, there's sometimes that feeling of that attraction to the corner and I want to be in it. And I just, I want to, you know, I just want to bury myself, I bury my head in the sand. And then you meet the most amazing people who inspire you and who constantly teach you and who come from it, a different perspective that you hadn't thought about. Well, I'm so thankful for that. Again, you know, going back to the empathy of just, you know, listening to other people's experiences. And now more than ever, how do we not? Everybody's going through this time so differently, every race, every religion, you know, every gender. Um, and I and I love being able to hear all these different points of views. I think that's the the one benefit to the space we're in when it comes to social media, right? Is yeah. that people's stories are more easily accessible to other people. And, um, you know, you, you see the, the most random things that go viral, but they absolutely tear you apart or, Mm -hmm. you know, they speak to your heart or whatever it is. And, um, and I think that that, that has been one of the benefits to this really weird social media world that we're in. 
And now we need it more than ever. And sometimes it's funny. It's, it's amazing, you know, what, what moves you, you know, if it's an incredibly moving video of a child and a mother being reunited um, after being apart for 55 days um, because of immigration or, you know, gosh, you know, apples and oranges completely, they're not comparing, but sometimes it's a puppy video that you just need so much, you know, that oh my just, God, that, yeah. right. You know, that sometimes, and you're right, because I don't know, I don't know where we really got that back then. It's almost like, you know, years and years ago, you would have to wait till your local news ended for the final 10 seconds. And they'd give you, you know, what they call a kicker, you know, this great, you know, let's do the, you know, the cat being rescued out of a tree story. And now all you have to do is search puppy videos, you know, and be like, I just need 30 seconds of this yeah, uh, or babies or, you know, whatever it is, or just heartwarming. And there's, a, you know, there's, there's a thousand reasons why it's so disappointing watching what's happening with uh, how journalists are viewed, you know, very serious reasons. And also not one of the disappointing reasons is just, again, going back to the storytelling and it's what journalists do so beautifully, no matter what you cover. And that's the shame in this, you know, that we're, that we're missing out in so many of these great stories, but it's also understandable because everybody's having to cover news, (laughs) you know, that it's just moving so fast. And so what are we covering right now? What are we what are we watching? But going back to the point of thank God for social media sometimes just to keep you alert with what's happening in the world news wise, but also just those breaks that we need so much. Right. And I think, you know, back in the day when we didn't have the constant barrage, right, because you only got it through your actual printed paper or during the couple of preset hours a day. When news was on, you didn't need the relief, right? Because you weren't, you weren't, uh, I mean, people would still complain like, oh, there's too much murder. There's too much, you know, whatever. Here's, here's a baby that was born uh, at, you know, 12.01 a.m. on January 1st. Um, But now it's almost like if you can't find those things, you're just going to be in a black hole, I feel like, because everything is terrible. Yeah. <laughs> like it's not, but it is, you know? Um, so I, I am so in love with like Darth and dog rates and <laughs> all of those. Um, they, they, uh, they definitely help the day move along. That's for sure. It's true because back, back in, gosh, it's, we sound so old back in the I day. I know we do. But, uh, but back when, um, that was kind of the cotton candy, you know, that it was just that like little airy, you know, sugar that you could just kind of like, ah, I just need this little break. And now it's almost like that's the nutrients, you know, that you have to, that you have to remember to feed yourself with. So we don't go down that, that dark hole, which is so easy to get sucked into. And I'm mindful of that on days where, you know, just your, your timeline dictates everything, you know? So it's always amazing. My husband and I always say this where, we can sit there on the phone and both be in our Twitter rabbit holes, you know, for, for an hour. And yet are, have we even seen anything the same? And in sometimes I'm mindful of my moods of what my timeline looks like, you know, how it, when Twitter first came out, it was mostly sports and now it's a little bit sports, but it's mostly news now and just enough of dog rates and, you know, yeah. and just, just enough of those. But sometimes there's times I've got to be mindful of, Hey, don't, don't go down this hole today. You know, let's stay a little more positive or, 
I've been out of the loop for a couple days. I better get right back into it and make sure I don't check out from the news that's going on. I don't want to desensitize myself. Um, so it's interesting how, uh, unlike the local news or the paper, that we all got the same thing. You're in charge of what you're seeing now, and that, in one way, terrific. Um, and in the other way, that's a little bit scary because am I getting everything I should be and what I need to see, and maybe from different sides that I hadn't considered. Right. Well, and I mean, yes, we're in charge, but the algorithms are in charge, really. Yeah. You know. So then there's that whole aspect. Um, uh, but I definitely have to shut it off, shut it down sometimes, and be like, nope, not today. It's just this is going to be bad for me. I know it is. I got to I got to step away. And then there's guilt with that because think about right. especially you know you and I consider ourselves you know champion of women and 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 champion of humans, uh, just human beings. And there's that guilt. Uh, there's that selfishness of, I need to check out. I need, I need a mental health day, or I need a mental health two days away from all of this. And then there's that guilt of, but we're in the middle of something right now. And that's what some people want is that we do check out and that we're not paying attention. So there's the guilt of that. So it's, it's, it's all, I mean, we're all learning this as we go right now. It's, it's really scary. Do you ever have moments, um, I know I do, um, sometimes with people I work with um, and like some friends, uh, less on the friend side now because it seems that um, a lot of my friends are kind of like right in it with me. But, you know, where there are people who are just blissfully unaware or they're just, they, they either they're not paying attention uh, on purpose or not on purpose. And at moments they're like, why are you so upset about this? And, and like in your brain, you go, why the fuck am I carrying this giant burden for you? Yeah. And for everyone else. Yeah. And yes. And I love exactly the way you phrased it and the feeling behind it. Absolutely. And, And I'm the same way you are. I would say not any friends anymore. Um, I think nowadays, the older you get, hopefully, at least hopefully for me, your circle gets smaller and tighter. Yeah. Um, because you know, you don't have enough time for for the people you love, let alone people you don't. And so I find that the people who I really want to spend time with are right there in the in the thick of things. But work can be tough, you know, we're exactly blissfully unaware or now I know, um usually being the only woman and you know, in in uh in in every week when I travel or when I'm with, with my work people, it's it's all men. And when I was young, I just didn't say anything because I wanted to fit in so badly. And I never wanted to be the girl. And I didn't want anyone to have to stop what they were saying because there was a girl around. So you you play it so much in that direction. And now I'm at a point in my life and in my voice where I, I'm going to stop everything, you know, and, and say that's not right. Or why do you feel like that? Or make sure I'm getting it in there. And And that sometimes can frustrate me now where I feel like, um, I feel like I'm fighting a lot of battles and that part doesn't frustrate me because I'll fight, you know, I'll fight every battle for what's right. But I feel like that's exhausting and having to explain, you know, recently to a man who, you know, said something about, you know, uh, just, you know, dismissing me too. And it said, it just, it's so confusing. And I said, what's so confusing to you? And he said, what do you say? What do you don't say? And I said, have you ever told me you look that I look nice? 
you know, when I, when you see me before on camera, have you ever, you know, complimented and said, I look nice. And he said, yes. And I said, so do you have a problem telling a woman she looks nice today? And he said, no. And I said, have you ever told me my ass looks good in these jeans? And he like kind of got flustered and was like, no. And I was like, well, have you ever said, no, I've never said that. And I was like, so then you know the difference. You, you, you just told me, you know, the difference of what it is. So I, I'm not going to sit here for an hour and, and fight about this with you because it's, it really isn't that hard. Um, and so that stuff, that, that is exhausting to me. And, and I feel the same way you do where part of you just wants to go, Oh, like, I, do I really have to take this on today? I just want to prepare for my job. And the other part goes, hell yeah, you have to, you have to take it on today and every day that it comes your way, but it is, it's exhausting. And Again, if that's as a woman, if that's as a minority, if that's, you know, like whatever race, whatever religion, it's, I think everybody feels that right now that we're all gaining a little bit weight because the weight's a little bit heavier on every one of our shoulders. Right. And, you know, it's important and you'll see this, you know, different people will tweet it out. I know I tweeted it out at times and it's like, you, you have to take breaks for yourself um, from the, the, the mental health standpoint and for your physical health, because it does have a very serious physical impact. You need to take breaks. It may be a day, maybe an hour, maybe a week, but you have to know what's going to recharge and refuel you so that you are able to fight those fights. And I think that's, here's, here's the fear is I know what changed everything for me when I, like when I hit 40 and it wasn't like, you know, 40, I know it sounds like, ah, there we go. You know, hit 30, hit 40, hit 50. It wasn't at all the age, but I was on an airplane that I thought was going down. And of all my years of traveling, that's the only time it's happened, you know, where it really was like, oh, here we go. And people are crying and people are screaming and, and, you know, and the, the mask are dropping and Bobby Sue, I didn't care. I just, did not care. And I told someone recently that story and they were like, what do you mean? Like you didn't care, like you were at peace. And I was like, no, I didn't care. And they were like, so in other words, like that you felt like you had done what you were going, that you accomplished or you wanted to. I was like, no, I'm not saying this right. (laughs) You know, like I didn't care if the plane went down and I wasn't reaching for my phone. Um, And I, that plane landed and I said, all right, you know, so I've got to start living a life that it matters if the plane goes down and yeah. I got out of a, you know, a, a, a long marriage, you know, that, you know, that needed to be uh, taken care of a lot, a lot earlier than that. And my problem was at that time starting to do the work and starting to want to live a new life, but going, but what makes me happy? I, I don't know what makes me happy. I've lived my whole life checking off boxes to cover Super Bowls and Olympics and cover this event and co- be at this network. And, every box had been checked and suddenly I'm sitting there with a lot of boxes that are checked and nothing else. And that's always my fear at times like this, where I just think I'm so thankful right now that during this time that I found myself, that I found my life, that I did the work that I know what makes me happy. I have so many friends, male and female who are in that point now of, I don't know what makes me happy. And so we are completely, you know, we're, we're, we have all this going on in our world, which is so hard. And it's just, it takes so much energy as it should. And, and it's, it's so, it's so depressing and demoralizing. And for some people, how do you balance that when I don't even know what makes me happy? Right. And that, that again, going back to that weight where it's just every morning, instead of bouncing out of bed, 
you waking up and going, what did I miss? What's coming today? Right. Well, and also, I mean, to be fully aware of kind of like where you stand with everything. Right. And I can't, you know, part of me, I've kind of gone through something similar over the last couple of years. And this podcast has actually been a big part of it. And I wonder how I would be reacting to the news now and, and where I would, you know, quote unquote, come down on some of the issues if I hadn't done a lot of that introspective work and I hadn't really shored up what my, you know, passions in life are, but also my values. Right. And, and what it is that I want to be known for and stand for. Um, and I think you see that a lot of times right now with, with men and me too, to be honest, you know, because you see them going, uh, wait, uh, and you know, if someone took a, had the time to take a step back and really like dig into who they are, they'd probably find that answer really quickly. It's, it's funny where it's, I don't know if people, it goes back to your question about kind of the, you know, the, the, the unawareness or, you know, the blissfully ignorant. And I always wonder that even before I did my work, you know, did I not do the work because I didn't want to do the work? Was I unaware that I needed to do the work? Was I afraid of the work? Well, you know, I, and I always think about that with people who, um, who just, who haven't figured that out. And is, is everybody going to find it out just at a different time or does it take a tragedy? You know, does it take a plane crash or a near plane crash for everybody or what it is that makes you really go, okay, it's time to look inward. Um, I, I just, I, I can't imagine my life if I didn't change everything. And, and I had it, I had a horrible year, a horrible year. And I'm so thankful for that year. Like I just, I would have had nothing. I, I wouldn't have any of this life that I love so much right now if I didn't have that horrible year. And and I'm just making it into that neat little year. I mean, that really, that year was really 13 years. But, you know, like that that hard year of work of, okay, you know, so getting out of a, a marriage and not dating and not hiding into work and really going, this is one year about what's your shit. You know, who are you? And you got to figure this out before you bring anybody else into your space. Right. And I, I just don't, I, I'm so thankful for that. But again, I don't know if some people, if, if, if a lot of people don't do it because they're scared of it, or you just don't, I don't know if you're just unaware of it. Yeah. I, I, I wonder that sometimes too, when like, I, particularly when I meet a guy and I'm like, yeah. do you really not have a clue about, who you are at yeah. all. And you can usually tell within like 20 minutes of talking to somebody. Thousand percent. Uh, and, have you, oh, go ahead. No, no, but you. There was a cartoon once and it's an old one, but I love it. And it shows a woman like, a you know, beautiful, you know, a beautiful woman looking in the mirror and she's, you know, lovely and skinny and, you know, and, and, and looking and you see her reflection, what she's looking at and, you know, tack on 200 pounds and, you know, pimples and her hair's a mess, you know, and all of that. And then and then it's a, a man who really is about 450 pounds and no hair. And he's looking in the reflection and sees George Clooney. Yeah. And 
it's always like, that's one of those I never judge men for. And I'm like, more power to you. You know, like, I wish we were like that. But I'm amazed the more work I do with women and I do a lot of work with men, the the inner dialogues and our inner dialogue is I'm not smart enough. I'm not pretty enough. I'm not thin enough. And I just don't, I'm not successful enough. You know, all of that. And, and whenever I'm talking and doing the work with men, it's just, they're not quite as, awful to themselves they're not quite as not quite as angry it's just it's different and so there is it goes back to that kind of blissful ignorance where um i don't know if i don't know if men think that they need to do the work as much as we constantly think we're not good enough i just don't know there's always exceptions in both ways but just speaking totally in generalities i don't know if they if they feel as deeply about how flawed they are as much as we perceive uh, ourselves to be. Does that make sense? Yeah, for sure. I think that definitely makes sense. I think for, I think there's also so many different stressors and pressures on women than there are on men. And, and this is not to discount men's experience whatsoever. I mean, you have, we can have Tony Porter talk about that. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, for, for the, there are so many um, expectations of women um, that I think we either like think we have to do the work earlier, like you you were saying, or we crack at some point, yeah. and that forces the work, right? And I mean, in in my world, I don't necessarily think it was it was either. I think it 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 goes back to the the mental health stuff that um, I uh, handle and my family has handled. And so that's kind of always been a thing. And, and then just getting to a point where I'm like, you know, I'm not making the best decisions in my life right now. Let's kind of figure out why. Um, and I don't know. I mean, I think men are starting to, to do it more um, from, from what I am casually observing (laughs) yeah um yeah i I agree and i i know that um i just remember when i when i started i went from not dating for you know almost a year and really just doing my own work to then dating everybody you know going okay you know getting pushed out there and being like you gotta you gotta you gotta go and you gotta get back out there and I remember being like, at that time, I had done such great work and I was so on my path to who I was and what I needed. And one thing I didn't want to do was bring other people into it. I didn't want, especially men going, I want this from you. I need this from you because I was feeling really good about myself. Right. And, and, and I kept saying, as my friends were trying to push me out for a long time, going, boy, I'm on this great, beautiful path right now. And you've got to be a really good man to move me from this path. You know, that you've got to, you've got to jump on and come with me because I'm not detouring right now. I'm, I'm, I'm in this great direction. And I'll tell you, I, everyone put the fear of God in me, you know, being at 40 and being early forties and dating in Los Angeles and being like, Oh Lord, like maybe you should go back home to Chicago. Like maybe you should go date somewhere else. And I, I can tell you that, I had the greatest dating experience of my life at that, you know, during that time, because 
I would start every every single date with I'm not looking to get married. I'm not looking for this, you know, this relationship. I'm looking for great people right now. I'm looking for great conversations. I'm looking for just great connections with people. And it took the air out of everything. And suddenly it was I got everything it was I got everything I needed from me. Mm-hmm. Instead of going, I need this from a man. I need this from a man. I was going, I need this from me. I need this from me. And suddenly I looked at my list and went, I don't give myself any of this. So how am I expecting this from somebody else? And it was amazing what all of a sudden I started attracting as soon as you give that to yourself. And I don't know how this just turned into a dating conversation. I don't know. <laughs> but, but, I, but it's the universe too. And sure. I looked at going back to men who do the work. That's when the love of my life showed up because it was a man who did his own work by himself. And suddenly it was two people coming together and go and rec- work recognizes work. I, you know, I, I agree with everything you just said. I don't know that. Um, I, I definitely don't get pushed out as much as your friends did. Mm. Um, but there are times where people are like, you're 37. You're single. You have cats. What the hell are you doing? <laughs> and, and to be honest, sometimes I'm like, you know, I have just not met as many interesting men down here. And, yeah. and maybe it's where I'm located. Maybe. Or maybe I'm just so okay with where I am with just me that I don't care enough, you know, yeah. to like get out there. And I'm kind of busy. <laughs> yeah. like, so. I don't know, but I do agree that 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 tends to be the best space to be in, right? Is when you're 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 completely content where you are. You don't have to add somebody. You you know would enjoy maybe having somebody who adds to your life experience, but uh, there's no requirement, you know. And the funny thing is, it's like, as you were saying that with, you know, with, with who you are, where you are, like, I want to be like, yes, I have, I have cats. And then I want you to make a list of everything else you have, you know, your amazing job and your amazing outlook and your amazing right. podcast. You know, it's, right. it's funny how it can, how you can shift any storyline uh, or any narrative where I'm like, oh Lord, sister, like you've got a great, you got a great kid going, you got a great life going. And, and I just think, again, if it's dating or if it's, you know, dating, if it's dating men, if it's dating women, if it's dating the world, you know, whatever it is, it's just, you know, put your hand out and put a, put a big thing of sand there. And when you squeeze the sand, the sand's going to come out of your hand. And then when you just loosen that hand, the sand sits. And and I always say that with, you know, with the young women I mentor, you know, again, if it's relationships or if it's jobs, whatever it is, it's just don't squeeze the sand so hard. And, you know, and and that to me, again, is when the magic happens. And I know, and, you know, back to the dating, believe me, what happened is all of a sudden I'm starting every conversation with men with, I don't want a relationship. And so what do you think happens? Suddenly I'm getting every man who wants a relationship in LA because it's kind of like, wait a minute, what do you mean you don't? Well, why don't you want one with me? But it wasn't a game. It wasn't a game I was playing. It was genuinely I'm just so good with where I am. And I just believe that attracts energy and, and again, in people and in things and, and in opportunities. So to me, I just, oof, you know, anybody who says you're this age and not married, I, I, I can, I can make a list of 20 reasons why you're, you know, that's, a, that's, you're in a fantastic place. And as somebody who found, you know, found love uh, in her forties, 
I would tell you, oh my gosh, like I, I found him right when I was supposed to. Any earlier, it wouldn't have worked for both of us. And and I would not, I would not have, as much as I want more time with him and as much as I, you know, wish we had, you know, had, you know, 20 extra years, I'm so thankful I found him when I was ready for him and when, when he was ready for me. Um, so yeah, no, I hate hearing that. So you, you keep doing you and don't <laughs> squeeze that sand and the right stuff and the right people come your way. Yeah, for sure. And I, I agree with that, that sentiment about any earlier and, you know, I, I have been pretty open with people, even on the podcast about like, yeah, I've gone through a bunch of struggles and I wasn't always in the best headspace. And, you know, I probably, you know, well, I had been in relationships that didn't work and I'm not saying that those people were the right people, but if I had met the right person at that time, that probably wouldn't have worked either um, Mm -hmm. because of where I was. So I do agree with that. And, but I do like that point what you you kind of pointed out to me and and I do this often and you're right is the and I I know a lot of people who do this too and I always try and do what you just did which is you know add more to the end cats you know like yeah you know because and I forget and this is one of the things I mean I, if we stay on dating for a minute that's one of the things that I've actually found is that people are intimidated and I I'm thinking what I'm a lawyer. I, I managed to do my job. Okay. If I can do it, other people must be able to do it. And I'm mm. constantly forgetting that that's not necessarily the case. Yeah. And, um, that, you know, uh, that it is a big deal. Um, be, you know, when I think sometimes when you're in it, you don't realize how big of a deal it is to other people. Isn't that funny? And and I still think there's so something to as women and as young girls, you know, just starting we're always trying to make ourselves smaller and, and for whatever reason, being told men are intimidated by it or seeing that, you know, either hearing it or seeing it, men are intimidated by successful women or, you know, nobody asks the man, can he have it all? You know, it's, it's always us. What are we choosing a career or home or kids or, you know, all of that. And I just know that I, I, I just know that all this time of trying to, to, to make us smaller. And then all of a sudden the right people show up. And I know, you know, again, staying with, you know, with dating and and again, with the love of my life with Mike, I found a man who wasn't intimidated by it, like was in love with what I did. Yeah. Love with it. And, and we, and, and it challenged him, you know, what he always says, which is my favorite compliment of just, you know, it challenges him to do, you know, to do better and to do bigger as does his success, you know, challenges me as well. And so whenever anyone says that, I'm like, the, 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 the right man isn't intimidated by that. And you and I are around, you know, successful alpha men, you know, are, are every day. And I look and go, those, those men can handle successful women. And that's what they attract. And anybody who makes you feel like that, anybody who is in your presence, and that's not just men, that's can be girlfriends, right. that can be family members who try to, you know, that you try to downplay what you do. Um, and, I know those days are over for me. I, you know, that I, I know that now I'm real quick to say, you know, my ands it, it, that, that I'm a whole lot more, you know, sideline reporter, you know, that can, that can burn me up. And, you know, that's something that I do, but that's, that's mashed potatoes. You know, that, that's not my, that's, I always say to my girls, you know, that's not your filet mignon, like two and a half minutes on a sideline is, is not your filet mignon. That's an outstanding, delicious side portion of mashed potatoes. But 
I'm real quick to now say, you know, that, hey, I'm a CEO of a production company and, you know, and, and I want to make sure that I'm, I'm a media trainer and a coach and I'm hired by NFL teams and NFL coaches. And before I would have downplayed all of that and been like, whatever, however you want to introduce me is fine. And and I am I now make sure that I'm playing bigger and I'm making myself not bigger. I'm making myself as is because we've earned that. We have earned that. And I've never heard a man try to downplay his success. I do not know where that comes from with us, but it crushes me every time I hear a woman try. Yeah. I mean, I recently had the experience of meeting someone, you know, I love what you said about Mike and how it challenges him. And, you know, he was in love with it. I I recently met somebody and it's the first guy I've met um, who was in awe and not, Mm. you know, and not intimidated. So it was like, you're a badass. Mm. And like saw me the way that my girlfriends see me. Right. And the way that like people who've known me my whole life say they see me. And that's as this, you know, whatever, whatever it is I am. But But do you see yourself like that? At times. Yeah. Um, it, I've gotten better. It's getting better as I, as I continue to do the things that I know are right for me and that, I feel like is contributing in a positive way. Yes. Um, but it's still at times you feel, I don't know, there's that like, am I boasting by calling myself a powerful woman? As you should. But then there, are, there, there are the little things where you're like, am I really that powerful if I'm not getting paid X amount or I'm not like, those are the things that will pop into my head that pull me back from it. But uh, yeah, so a big thing that I do with uh, with coaching is we talk so much. So as a journalist, and as a person, it's the who, not the do. And in in a profession, you know, both yours and mine and, and so many people, but we, we concentrate so much on what do you do? You know, I'm a lawyer. I'm a journalist. I'm a sideline reporter. And I finally got to a point where none of that mattered. And so what that it's all about, you know, your who, who are you? And so I do this when I train the NFL teams and the players is when I introduce myself to them to get their attention, to make sure that they, you know, I'm standing there talking to 110 men and all alpha men and I, and all eyes on me. And you got to get that room quickly. I'll have somebody time this and I'll go over, you know, what I do real quickly. And it can sound pretty impressive. You know, I went from local, you know, local stations to network covered three. I traveled with the Chicago Bulls during the Michael Jordan and three championships, one in Emmy. Uh, worked for the NFL on Fox for over a decade, have covered over a dozen Super Bowls, have hosted three Olympics. I'm the CEO of a production company and now media train players and coaches and NFL teams, professional franchises, and now have a company for women in sports. How long did that take? And I can usually do that in 32 seconds and hit my highlights. You know, I kind of went through real quickly just now, but it took me 32 seconds to go over my stats or what I do. That's it. Now, if you want to get to know who I am now, that's the good stuff. Like now come and hang with me a little bit because now I'm going to tell you who I was for a really long time was a young girl who lost her mom to cancer. And that defined me uh, for decades, for years. It was always a sadness to me, but my who has shifted. My who now is after being told for years and years, you're in a business 
that uh, that you will have you will age out of. You are in a business where you will not last longer than 40. You cannot age on camera. And I believed that for a really long time until I did it. And now what I would tell you is sitting here right now on this podcast with you and with my puppy to my right, Mm -hmm. uh, sleeping so silently. My who is I'm in love with my life for the first time ever. I'm sitting here so in love with my life, with my opportunities, with, with my new husband, with my puppy to my right with the life that I've created in these rooms I now find myself in and these podcasts I now find myself on. And my who is just all the work that it took to get me to this beautiful place. And that's the important stuff. That's, that's the honey, you know, that's the good stuff. I'm not wasting more than 32 seconds on what my job is because it's cool and I love it. And I've had some great, I've had some great stuff from them, but it's if you're going to hang on my who we're going to talk about my mom dying and my best friend Stuart Scott dying and and a very scary divorce and you know and all those horrible things that have led me to this beautiful part of life and that's the important stuff so i say all of that thing it's just it's it, i don't even want to hear the narrative in your head of you know i'm a powerful woman but am i but yes you are and that's how, you know that that if you would have saw yourself 20 years ago in this position, you would have been like, oh my God, like, boy, did I do something right? Like, how badass am I? And suddenly you get to that position and you downplay for whatever you know reason we all do. But look at where you are. And again, I don't care about your title. Look at what you've created from that. Look at this network. Look at this podcast. Look at this champion that you are and you're becoming in terms of everything, in terms of depression, in terms of what you've overcome using the hardest part of your life to be a light for so many and now championing all these women. So I look at your who and I'm like, oh, I don't even care. But this is the goal. This is the good stuff. You know, it's funny. I was about to say this reminds me of when you and I first spoke and I was telling you about the podcast and um, talking to you a little bit about you and you're like, you know, all this other stuff is great, but man, you know, the fact that you're so open about you know, living with depression and anxiety. I mean, that's, that's your thing. That's, you know, and so I appreciate that. And I do, I, I take, I take what you say to heart and, and you're right. You know, there, there are, there's more than the resume. And, um, I went, I kind of went through this exercise with my LinkedIn. It sounds so funny, but like your LinkedIn profile, right. And how, you can have that little headline and it doesn't have to be what your current job is right Mm -hmm. before it used to just be wherever you were right then, you know, is what would show up. And now, so I have, you know, it say that I'm, um, a sports attorney, uh, you know, have owned this podcast that I'm a mental health advocate, you know, stuff like that. And, and even just adding that stuff in there was, it was kind of a big deal for me to, to be like, and here's who I, I am, you know, same with the, the Twitter bio, which sounds so silly, but you know, yep. You're going to hear me talk about animals a lot. Sorry, people, (laughs) (laughs) you know, but that's a big part of who I am and you know, what makes me happy. It's, we already said my two favorite words. We already said one of them, but it's empathy and it's vulnerability. And I know, um, you and I are going to speak a similar language, 
because I know, you know, kind of the, the question, did you choose your job or did your job choose you? I always have felt, well, of course, I'm going to be a journalist because for, you know, the first 40 years, um, I never talked about myself. I, I never, I, I hid behind everybody else's story and look at what you're doing, you know, that you are, everything is about your client. Everything is about other people. And there's nothing more uncomfortable than all of a sudden, you know, making it about yourself and making it about your own story. And I know when my mom died and I started calling my friends and saying my mom died, 95% of them were absolutely stunned because I never told them my mom was sick. And I know when I went through, you know, get it, when I said I'm getting a divorce, my friends were stunned because I never told them I had a bad marriage. And that was part of the work that I did, you know, getting out of everybody would say if they talked to me like Laura's great, you know, like you're going to she's going to get stuff out of you. She's going to make you cry. She's going to listen and she's going to know your story. But if you would have turned around and said, how many brothers or sisters does Laura have? You know, does she have any pets? Where's she from? Nobody would have known. I, I didn't share anything. And so the first thing I learned when, you know, when I started really having to deal with vulnerability was you don't share your good stuff. You know, you, you share the, you share the anxiety, you share the depression like you did, like, which can feel, you know, like you're standing out there naked. And it was, it's the scariest thing, but I know the older I get and this great place I find myself in because of the work, I don't believe in small talk anymore. I can't do it. I'm not capable of it. <laughs> it's just, if, if it's, it's not of substance, I don't have time for it. And, and, and again, that might mean at the grocery store where somebody says, how are you? I treat it like a question. You, you know, like it's not just a passing comment anymore that if, if I ask somebody, how are you doing? I stay for the answer. So it's not just meaning like, hey, I want to have an hour conversation with everyone I don't. But it's just, I just feel like more than ever, there's such a time of vulnerability and of sharing and those little, like, I don't even know that LinkedIn bio, I don't do LinkedIn and not because I shouldn't, because of course I want to be more connected and of course I want more opportunities, but going back to the squeezing the sand, I just, I don't push anymore. I don't sell anymore. I don't fight anymore. I did that for a really long time, for 25 years. I had to fight for being a woman in this business. And yes, I know what I'm talking about. And please hire me and let me show you how much I know about sports. And there just got to a point where I was like, I, I don't need to do that anymore. I don't need to sell. I don't need to push. I don't need to squeeze the sand and the right people will appear. And, and not because I believe in just being, you know, means you're going to attract. I believe you do the work and that, and then you're going to attract. Cause I'm always careful. Like I don't, I don't just say a prayer and hope God delivers things on my doorstep. I might say a prayer, but I also am going to do the work to have it happen. I don't just manifest. I do the work. Right. And it, that it all starts with the vulnerability to me of making sure that of everything that you just said, all of that, I'm not going to hire you or I'm not going to be attracted to you. I might want to talk to you about your cool job. But as soon as I hear that you're an advocate for mental health, as soon as I hear about your podcast, like that's where that's where I'm wanting to get to know who you are. Yeah. And I think, you know, I it's it's interesting because I've had people maybe even just a couple two years ago or so be like, you know, I, I know you're really outspoken about the depression and, and anxiety stuff, but, uh, you know, did did you ever worry? And I just looked at the person and like, I, I've gotten to a point where if someone doesn't want to hire me because I talk about some of my struggles, 
and not in a, you know, woe is me kind of way, but in a here, here, here are things that I've gone through. Um, and always the follow up of you're not alone and, Mm -hmm. and things like that, you know, if they don't want to hire me because of that, I probably don't want to work for them. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And in 25 years of interviewing people and conversations and, you know, I'm very blessed to have, you know, had conversations with, you know, who we, who we view as the most successful people, you know, but, but who have accomplished men and women who've accomplished so much. And all I know, Bobby Sue is nobody hangs on the good stuff. You know, the ending is like, and they want a championship and they want a title. That's where they hang is the depression, is the pressure they felt, is the, you know, the is is the death of someone close to them, of you know, the the thinking about committing suicide. It's that's the stuff that for people who've done the work, that's your story. Right. And no and anytime where I get into the who, not the do, nobody has a good nobody has an uplifting who. It's just <laughs> and it doesn't mean it's a depressing who. I mean, it's it's but it's a if you really want to understand who I am, you have to understand that I've overcome this or I've struggled with this or I, you know, I continue to struggle with this. And that's where you find, that's where you find the true connections nowadays. It's not a just, yay, I love sports, you know, like, okay, so does everybody. But um, it's, it's it, to me who I connect with now, anybody who shares vulnerability, if it's something that I, if I do empathize with, or if it's something that I just go, ah, like I get you, sister, I get you, brother, and I can't be around them quick enough just for the just the strength of of being able to show vulnerability. Like I'm just I'm I'm consumed with that. I'm obsessed with that now. Just that that beauty of vulnerability, and that that to me, like I'd sit, I, that would be my favorite competition of like who could be more vulnerable. Oh my gosh, yeah, <laughs> uh, right. It's not comfortable for most people, no. and so that's why I love like. Just saying, you know, in a LinkedIn bio or Twitter bio, that's a huge, huge step just to admit that you're admitting that to the world. Yeah. I, yeah, I feel like you and I would be like, would be able to just like sit around a fire with Booyah hanging out and, and like each of us reading a different Brene Brown book, you know, like. A hundred percent. Just read this, read this. Yeah. Can we call her? (laughs) Yeah, a hundred percent. Here's the thing, and not even needing her, of just needing each other, you know, our experiences and our growth. And she's tapped into it and knows what to call it. And we just, you know, for most of us, we haven't yet, you know, or that we've, you know, we felt it, but don't make it bigger. And and women like her and, you know, and, and so many others in that space, they're able to name it and they're able to learn from it. We're still in, you know, most of us are still in that, like, oh, I feel this, but it's just, it's once you feel it and once you name it and once you share it, like that's just, it's magical. Yeah. I had a, um, I have a therapist that I see from time to time, uh, because I'm luckily not in the middle of it. Right. And, um, and I've, she's, I've gone on and off, um, since I was a teenager, um, to therapy and, you know, I, I don't think I ever realized how much I didn't click with someone um, mm. and how much it wasn't working until I met this woman. And our first session, she's like, wow, you've got a lot of shame. Uh, uh. And I was like, I always thought it was guilt. She goes, and, and we talked about it. And I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> and it was one of those amazing moments. 
Mm. of like complete clarity. I mean, it leveled me, of course, because that's what happens. And I've told people who are in there, you know, who are thinking about going to therapy. I'm like, let me just tell you, you'll know it's working when you leave and you're fucking exhausted. Yeah. And, yeah. and you, you can't anymore for the day. That, uh, and, and that was one of those days. And, and then of course, then I like am kind of Googling and I find Brene Brown and I'm like, I have to read everything, uh, <laughs> but it was great. You know, it, it's, you know, great, not great, whatever, but it's, it was one of those very eye-opening moments and, um, and a really good, uh, like you said, being able to put a name to it. And then, then you, you can handle it. It's like when you, when you're not feeling well, once you can put a name to it, even though you might be really worried about what it is, but once you, once you're able to label it, then you know how to treat it. It's so true. And, and, and not let the narrative run away. I know I, I, I didn't go to therapy until again, during that, like during my 40, you know, like that, mm-hmm. during that, that year, you know, my a year of my growth. But when I went and I remember talking about, you know, going back to when my mom died and I hadn't, I hadn't gone to a therapist then and, and should have, um, but we were talking about it and we went, you know, we moved the conversation and I started talking about just all the bad decisions I made after my mom died and, you know, and just saying it with just such disgust, you know, like I did this and I did that. And, you know, like, what was I thinking here? So she said, you work a lot with young women, don't you? I said, yeah. And she goes, let me ask you something. If someone came to you, you know, 23 years old and one of your girls that you love and her mom just died, you know, what would you do? And I was like, oh, you know, like I can't wrap, I couldn't wrap my arms around her quick enough, you know, and that happens, you know, all the time when I meet young girls who have lost a parent, right? Uh, especially their mom. And and she said, what would you do if they told you, you know, that they did this and this and she's naming everything I did. And I was like, oh, I would, you know, and I got so emotional. I was like, I would tell her she's doing the best that she can, you know, because she kept saying, would you tell her she's stupid? I'm like, of course not. Would you tell her, would you shame her? No, you know, and 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 it was just, you know, as soon as I said, like, you know, that I would tell her she's doing the best that she can. And she said, so why can't you tell yourself that? Mm-hmm. And that was my breakthrough, you know, my breakdown and, you know, which became the breakthrough of just why can't I tell myself that, you know, what? why am I so hateful to who I was back then? And yet any young woman who, who lost a mom at that age or any age, like I wouldn't, I couldn't, I can't love on them hard enough. Right. And again, it just goes back to what is that in us or about us um, that, that we don't see that in ourselves, but um, sometimes it's amazing how that one person can say that one thing and it just, that light bulb literally comes on where you're like, Oh, I, you know, I got it. And I'll tell you this, this is what changed. I remember this because, you know, my now husband, but then boyfriend, when I was, when I was seeing that therapist, I came home and I was telling him like what a huge moment that was. And had this, and I called him after therapy and said to him, you know, I was crying and just, and he said, how do you feel? And I said, like, I just ran a marathon, you know, I'm exhausted. And he said exactly what you just did. He said, congratulations. And I said, on what? And he said, you're doing therapy right. And that's how you should feel. But so what we did when I got home and I told him, you know, about, um, I, I have to start remembering who I was at that age and start treating her better. What we did was he took out a, a baby picture of him and then he had me take out a baby picture of me and we sent it to each other. And we said, every time we fight, let's take out that picture and remember who we're yelling at. And Aww. just to even remember, right? Like of just, you're yelling at that little girl. You're yelling at that little boy. And I'll tell you, like, 
it changed our tone of what we thought because suddenly, you know, that at the end of the day, that's who we are. It's, you know, that, that little boy or that little girl. And for most of us, it is one trauma. You know, I, mm-hmm. I will always be stuck at that year. My mom died, you know, cause it's a big part of me died at that time. Now a big part of me was reborn, you know, or, you know, or born from it as well. But I always think like we always said, like, Lord, like everyone would be so much kinder if we all had pictures, like little name tags of young pictures of us. I think we'd all be a little sweeter to ourselves, to each other, but most importantly, to ourselves. Sure. No, I think that I mean that. What a smart thing to do. And I just think like so my dad passed when I was eight. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah, that's the Doyle part of my last name. And, um, and he had custody of my sister and I, mm. uh, which back then was not a thing. Yeah. Um, so yeah, like I, I get it. And I, I think like a lot of times there are, I think parts of me that are still, and, and those are the things that I work on, right? Those are the parts that are, you know, still kind of stuck in that, you know, girl. yeah. And, you know, this is a longer story, but me thinking it was my fault and, and stuff like that. So, um, it's, I, I never would have thought about the exchanging of photos, but it's so good. Uh, it's, I'm sitting here thinking just, I remember, I remember when my mom was dying the last week in the hospital and it was in Chicago at Northwestern hospital and there's a bridge and you stand there and you overlook it, you overlook the city. Mm-hmm. And I would just stand there. And I remember looking out as the world was going on and being so angry, you know, that the world was going on. And I remember thinking, but the one thing is I'm not eight years old. I'm not five years old that, you know, that at that time, you know, you feel like you're so wise, you know, in your early twenties and so old. But I remember thinking, but I can ask questions. I, I, I can't be angry at myself or at cancer, you know, at her. Yeah. I know it's cancer, but I can't even imagine what you went through because of that, where I just always thought the layers of emotions you must feel and not understand, not just at that age, but until you go to therapy, until you do the work, how you, how you viewed that, I can't even imagine. Yeah. I mean. It's as I get teary now, because it's still a thing, right? Like um, one thing that you and I had in common for a little while around our parents passing. um, So you wear um, your mother's ring. Um, Can you can you talk a little bit about about that ring? I'm trying to remember or even know how you got this. Like I'm really good at my 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 faux job. Because you ripped it to my soul. Um, so my mom and I, and I'm I'm sitting here touching it as you as you asked. Um, my mom and I used to go on our girls' vacations. I have two brothers I love dearly, and my dad, and um, we, but my mom and I had a you know a very special girls' connection, and we would do our one vacation a year together. And the first one we went to was um, we went on a vacation to to Mexico together. And one of the vendors on the beach came over and said um, that he was he was making initial ring. So we each had one. I had LMO, uh, Laura Michelle Oakman, and my mom's is EKO, Evelyn Kotler Oakman. And um, we wear we wore those for years, um, you know, for years and years. And 
it was crazy because our rings, one of us would always lose them and, and they would always show up. And that was always kind of the magic ring. We would talk about that. It just wouldn't allow us to lose the ring. And we never took them off. And yet sometimes like it would just, you know, if your weight flux fluctuates, we would lose it a couple of times or going to the hospital for a test or something and forgetting where it was. And so um, when my mom passed away, um, I took her ring and I put mine on her and I buried her with my ring. And so I wear her ring. Um, so that is my touchstone. It's whenever I don't even think it's a nervous habit anymore. I think whenever I'm going through something painful, or if I'm going through something wonderful, I always have my hand on my right pinky. Um, do you have anything from your dad? So for a very long time, um, <clears throat> ooh, this is unexpected. Okay. So for a very long time, I had the engagement ring that he had given my mom. Now I'm from a very, very blue collar family. So it was this really dainty um, gold band with a like a chip of a diamond a very tiny little chip but the setting and the and the um the cutting in the band the little lines that they had in the band just made it really sparkle and mm. so i got that from my mom gave that to me on my 16th birthday and then oh. i had that until maybe i was like 30 or 30 one it um my apartment in boston got uh broken into and oh. i hadn't been wearing it um as of late at that point um i was a waitress and you know sometimes you take things on take things off and i i um and so that was taken which was shocking to me because it, it was so little and it you know again chip of a diamond so from like a retail value it was like nothing but it like completely killed me. Yeah. Oh. And so then a couple years ago, I think I was like 35 or how old am I now? 37. So I must've been like 30, it must've been my 35th birthday. I decided I need to buy myself a right hand oh. ring. Yeah. And um, I wasn't going to spend a lot of money. I was going to get just something really like maybe a couple hundred dollars, maybe. But I found this ring that is um, that when I looked at it, I had that same feeling as with my dad's ring. Um, it's dainty. It has um, it has morganite and and some little diamonds. But it, the way it sparkles and and some of the the cutting of the band, it's strawberry gold, not regular gold. But that mm. his gold was a little not like regular yellow either so anyway but there was just like this feeling i remember taking a picture and sending it to one of my girlfriends um and i was like doesn't this remind you so much of my dad's ring oh. and she's like it, it certainly reminds me of some of the engagement rings you and i looked at at one point <laughs> that you wanted to look like your dad's ring and um and i just it was it was much more than i had anticipated but i was like you know what i'm just gonna do it um they didn't even know it was there at the store. Like it oh. must have just arrived. They're like, where'd you even find this? Like, I didn't even see this ring. I'm like, I don't know. It was just in the case right there. <laughs> like, and so, um, so yeah, so that I wear that, you know, pretty much all the time now. Oh, I love that. And 
And it's funny because it's like, can't you hear your dad when you were devastated as I would be about the ring being stolen? Can't you hear him so much like saying you don't need the ring? You know, like I'm here, like I'm with you. So I love that he led you to that ring that the people didn't know about in the store because, you know, he did. But doesn't that like there's something there's something really beautiful about you even picking that out of that of that being like even more of a special ring because of again, because of, you know, it's almost like, you know, losing him than losing the ring, how those are tied together. But I love that. Are you always touching? Like, is that just your touchstone, too? Yeah, I do tend to touch it a lot and kind of like fidget with it or under the table. I'll play with it. If I get if I get angry, though, that's not what I'm doing. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) If I get angry, usually it's like the thumbnail into the opposite hand palm to keep me from (laughs) like rage tears. (laughs) But yeah, I do um, when I wear it. It's just kind of like, you know, it's funny because I've had people be like, Again, like, don't you think like that looks like an engagement ring? And I'm yeah. like, yeah, it's, it's on the right hand, though. They're like, yeah, but you know that that doesn't like, you know, there are some cultures that you wear it on your right hand, not your left hand. Whatever. Again, that that guy that I met recently, and this isn't somebody I'm dating. It's just somebody who it's like it, it's almost shocking how much this person like saw me, you know, mm. um, and I he he at one point asked me if I had ever been married mostly because i explained laura listen to how i explained how where i live it's in a very sub like more suburban part of tampa with really great schools what <laughs> what so you have kids right exactly like uh no but i made a comment about my ring one day and he's like no i knew that wasn't an engagement ring you're mm. it's on you know and i'm like it's funny because i know so many men who look at it and go huh um but yeah, I mean, and that ring story clearly is one that like I still have problems with, like being able to talk about because it like gets to the core so much. Um, and, uh, you know, you you mentioned your very good friend, Stuart Scott, who passed away um, a few years back. I know we we just passed his anniversary, correct? Yeah. Yeah. I'm getting. Um, very close to his birthday right now. Yeah. Um, so I can only imagine how hard that had to have been for you. Um, it was, you know, it's, I, I, I'm struck because my mom was, my mom had just turned 50. And, you know, and when you're in your early 20s, that seems like a full life. And, you know, and then you start creeping up to that age and realize how, how she was just really beginning her life, you know, her life, her kids, you know, she had finally raised three kids and got them out of the house and got them, you know, they were healthy and happy and all of that. And she was just starting her life when she passed. And, and I don't think I needed a reminder of that, but it it was the same with Stuart in terms of, you know, of, of being as young as he was and knowing that for as much as everybody thought that he had accomplished so much, which he had, and used his platform and his voice beautifully. But I just, I'm constantly aware of, I wonder, I'm constantly thinking like, I wonder what Stuart would be doing now. I wonder how he would have evolved now. And, and, you know, and the obvious stuff about his daughters growing up and, and um, it's just, it's such a waste. Like it's, you know, it's just such a waste of life. And if people will say sometimes, you know, that when you, when you lose somebody, 
you know, well, what would your dad say? What would your mom say? And and you probably can't play that game that much um, being eight. Right. And sometimes I don't, you know, like I said, I feel like I can play it a layer deep with my mom. Um, but with Stuart, it's impossible because the greatest gift Stuart brought me um, over 20 years was I never knew what Stuart would say because Stuart was one of those rare friends that that made you feel so good about yourself. You know, like there was nobody who championed me better and more beautifully than Stuart, but he also told me what I needed to hear. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and there were times like if I called and I was struggling with something and he, he would say like, what do you need from me right now? Like, do you want me just to, you know, like love on you and just say, you're going to be okay. Or can I tell you how I feel? And when someone says that to you, you always have to go and tell me how you feel. But his voice was what I needed. And so obviously I can't get that voice in my head, you know, cause you don't do that usually for yourself. Um, so I miss him so much every day. I just, I miss his humor. I miss his inappropriateness. Uh, <laughs> I miss, you know, I miss, I miss everything. I miss, I miss his heart. I miss everything about him. Um, Stuart was the first one when, when Mike and I started getting serious, he came to LA and, uh, and the three of us went out to dinner because that was a big thing when I started dating because they had to understand that Stuart was my best friend mm-hmm. and that's an intimidating guy. And so they had to not be threatened by him. They had to not be insecure around him. I, I wasn't going to handle the, is anything going on with you guys question? You know, like yeah, that's forever 20 years. I'm not justifying or explaining. And and so Mike and him turned into best friends very quickly, which was pretty wonderful. But um, so at the towards the end, when Mike and I started getting really serious and Stuart was getting sicker and sicker, he would always say, don't worry, I'm, I'm not going to die before I marry you guys. And so there was some real bittersweetness to our wedding. Um, but his sister married us. And his sister asked if she could marry us um, at the night of the funeral when we were at her house. I think it was her house. And very much New Stewart had said that and said to us, you know, I, I want to be there for you guys. And so it was beautiful. And it was hard because I, I, we talked to her before and I said, I, I can't have you talk too much about him. And I can't have you talk too much about my mom or my husband's uncle, who was, you know, really, you know, the, the, the incredible man in his life, because it has to be about the celebration. I want them all mentioned because they're all there and I want them to be a part of this, but I, I want this to stay on, you know, on, on, on the celebration because right. it'll be too easy to go the other way. So just having her there and she looks just like him and her, and her humor is just like him. And she's as inappropriate. I mean, she is. A, <laughs> and so it, that was wonderful was still having him there. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's such a, you know how it is. It's just, you know, one day when someone is a part of your life every day and then you say that when people haven't lost somebody, I've, I've had people say that, if it's talking about Stuart or if it's talking about my mom or, and I remember like recently I had a tough day and said, I just miss him so much. And they're like, hasn't he been gone a while now? Oh God, punch that person in the face. (laughs) Right. Exactly. The same person who said, you know, about your cats, I'd punch them in the face. Oh yeah. You just, you want to punch him in the face, but you also just want to like hug him and be like, Oh, lucky you, you haven't lost anybody yet. Right. 
Right. You know, because imagine right now, whoever the most important person in your life is, you know, if you can't talk to them ever again, you can never hear the voice again. So, um, you know how it is. It's just, and I'm sure you're like this with your dad. I know you are that it's, it's amazing how someone can be gone, you know, over 20 years for my mom. And you and I have now had lives longer, you know, without parents than we have with parents. Yeah. And, and there's some days you can't explain it, but you wake up and just miss them so much. It hurts. And you don't even know why. Yes. I'm having a moment. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I'm no, sorry. no, it's good. It's good. Um, like, I'm going to keep it in. It's fine. <laughs> um, let it out. Sister. Yeah. Let it's, it out. you know, I think the, um, the year that I became older than my dad was when he died yeah. was, was the weird year for me. Cause he was only 30 uh, maybe. Yeah. So, um, yeah, but I do, you know, one thing that you mentioned about Stuart, um, and I'm glad you did because this will segue us away from this. Uh, even though it's beautiful to to recount, but I think um, I need to stop crying. Um, no, you don't. Is uh, it, is how he will he would tell you what you needed to hear that he would be there to hug you, but then he'd also be there to give you a push. And I know that that is something that you do with your galvanized women. Oh, you were really going to do a hard right to get it back to me. Um, yeah. And, and I'll tell you what, everybody thinks, so with galvanizers, you know, I do these boot camps and I try to keep them small. And so it's, you know, 20 women, a boot camp. It, it gets them to like really know each other and fall in love with each other. And it gets me to know every one of them better and get more time with them. So it's a smaller group. And I think when people ask about galvanized, they hear about the boot camps, they always think it's like, you know, like what a great mentor and it's two days of like support and, and, you know, an encouragement and I'm hard on them, Bobby Sue, cause that's what the world is. And I get two days with them and I, I always sign every email to all of my women. Um, or, you know, I'm, I'm with you, I can say to all my girls and I sign everything with a push and a hug it, because it, it, I always wanted to, you know, I always say to them, like, I, I want to hug you constantly, but if you wanted to do a boot camp that you were just hugged and supported, go have your mom run a great boot camp. Right. And you should, you know, like you need that mom. You need someone that is constantly telling you nothing but how beautiful you are inside and out and, and how amazing you are. But that's been my biggest growth as a coach and as a mentor um, is I've pushed hard. And, and the longer I'm doing this, the harder I'm pushing. And I struggle with that because I'm, I'm constantly, you know, day one with them, I do mostly hugging, but the whole idea is so day two, I've gotten, I've given them all the love and I've gotten them to love on each other, which is the whole idea. I want them to be a tight, tight group by day two, but it helps because then I get to push harder because they can lean on each other. And so what happens is, you know, that I'm, you know, that, that I feel like the villain and I feel like the bad guy, but it's, it's to me, I would have killed for it at 22, you know, to, or 26, um, or, you know, at 30, probably 36, you know, to have, to have a bunch of women in my life who were telling me how amazing I am, but also being very aware of my blind spots. 
And I think that's that's been the hardest thing about Galvanize is is pushing so hard. Um, but probably also, I'm guessing what I hope they would say is what they take out of it. Besides just the being loved on, but here's here's the blind spots that I was made aware of. Yeah, and I think you know you're you're doing it in a space where they know it's coming from a place of love, right? And it's yeah. not because I think it's so easy um, as a young woman to to see critique as competition or as personal, and, yeah. and you know, in a like, oh, she just does. She just doesn't want me to take her job, type thing, which is in particularly in your aspect of the industry a real thing. Um, yeah. But to to know that you know they have someone there who supports them, and you're hard on them because you want them to do well, and not because of whatever animosity story we're told we're supposed to have between women, you know. Yeah from the time that we're, you know, four. Um, and, and I think that that's really helpful and great because there, there are so many times where I think we as women also um, aren't, aren't sure how that critique is going to be taken. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that to me, I always say them, you know, when I go to bed day one, where I'm always kind of going over, you know, who did I, push too hard? You know, did I push anyone too hard? Did I not push anyone enough? And, and I always tell them afterwards, you know, after the boot camp's done, usually we kind of go over everything. The ones that I push really hard, I hope understand. And I I try to say this, I'm harder on the ones who remind me of me. And, you know, the things that, the things that I see that ah, I wish somebody would have helped me with that. And, and I'm, t- I'm tough on that. So sometimes I've got to be very aware. Are you coaching them? Or are you coaching yourself at 22? You know, and yeah. what's the difference, you know, and, and I, and I have to be mindful of that, but the things I'm also horribly hard on what they would tell you is they better not be a minute late. They better not, if I catch anybody, you know, doing anything that's anti-galvanized, you know, if there's any judging, if there's anybody that makes anyone feel bad about them, like I'm, I'm brutally hard on that and, and won't apologize for that. But it's, it's more the, the, like the being late and the, what are you wearing? And the things that I know this business is going to crush them for. And it's, I always try to explain it's, you know, building relationships is everything to me. It's, you know, my number one thing is relationships and I, you know, spent 25 years building them. I don't, I, I, I bring, 20 to 25 women into NFL buildings. I didn't just call somebody the day before, you know, that's, that's a a relationship 10 years in the making or 20 years in the making of a coach letting me bring in 25 women into an NFL team, which isn't easy. And I always explain to them, you know, Stuart, especially when I started doing this and I started telling Stuart, I'm going to bring them into teams. And Stuart was like, who am I talking to? I'm like, what do you mean? And he's like, you are so protective and possessive of your relationships, which I am. And I got to like a good motherly age where I was like, I'm okay with that. I'm going to share, but I would have never done that years ago because those relationships are my relationships. And I've spent 20 years making sure that they were done right. Now I'm bringing 25 women. And what if one does something that isn't right? And that happens. Mm -hmm. So I'm even harder on them going, you're not in this building 
you're in this building because I'm bringing you into this building. So there's there's a weight attached to that. You know, if you're not just re- representing yourself the same way I'm not representing myself, I represent Fox Sports or the NFL on Fox. So I have to be mindful of that at all times. So that was that's it's a big thing where, you know, it's it's, you know, again, what are you wearing? How, you know, are you on time? Are you saying thank you to everybody? When somebody says, are there, is there a question? Does everybody's hand go up? Um, and again, most importantly, have you loved on and supported your sisters? And people always think that it's a, it's a boot camp for broadcasters and it is in essence, but the on-camera parts, a one, t- one tenth of it. It's all about, you know, navigating all the grays in this world, in this business and how we handle, you know, being hit on um, and have to still sustain a, a relationship. As, as someone's making you uncomfortable, if it's a boss, if it's a player, if it's a coach. And so I think, again, if it, it, the, probably the, the, the kindest I am is during the on-camera critiques, because that's where I think they need the love, is to be told how good they are and how great they look and look at your poise. And, you know, and, and that's the stuff I don't want to ever destroy. But it's that professionalism and it's that we, we have to be, we have to hold ourselves to a different standard because the men in our business do, I think I'm probably extra hard on that. Yeah. And I think, I, I think that those are the, the biggest lessons for, for women in our industry, but in particular, those with the access to coaches and players, right? right. Because yeah. it, it, it always comes back to the do women even belong in the locker room? Yeah. And, and it's, it, we're still in a space where one fuck up may have a huge impact on other women's abilities to do their job in a professional manner in that space. A hundred percent. I had, I was training a major league baseball team at one point and we were talking about women in the clubhouse and one of the players, a perennial all-star, and we're about the same age. So, you know, he was, we kind of grew up together with, you know, more and more women coming into the clubhouse and I've known him for years. And I said to him, how does, how did, have you changed with women in the clubhouse? And so what he said was, well, in the beginning I was hard on, him. you know, cause you know, it's like, what are the, you know, what are girls doing in the clubhouse? But he said, then I became a father to a daughter. And so I became, you know, I, I became a little, you know, I, I became different. I became a little more protective. So now when there's a group of reporters around, the, you know, my locker, I look to the woman first because I know how hard it is. I know, you know, I know that it's not a welcoming place, you know, so I'll always give her a shot unless she asks a dumb question. And I was like, ooh, rewind that. What? You know, like what? And he said, well, unless she asks a stupid question. And I said, and, and he said, then I'm done with her. And I said, what if a man asks a stupid question? Or I said something about a man. You know, what if it was a man? He goes, oh, it's a stupid question. So I always say to my girls, do you hear the difference? Men ask stupid questions, we're stupid. If we ask one question and we we flub up one word, then it's you don't know sports. Right. Versus a guy asks a dumb question, you know, ah, whatever. But, you know, if we if we mess up the three, four and the four, three, we suddenly don't know anything about football. So there's there's a tightness to that. There's a tenseness to that of of making sure that every word you say is correct. And I know during the work that I did, you know, I had to do one of the things I pushed myself with was I had to speak without thinking about what I was saying. 
because that's how I was trained, which was you can't say a wrong thing. So always be so extra sensitive to what you're saying. And that, you know, it's what you do and who you are are always connected. And so that spilled over to my life. So suddenly I couldn't have a conversation with somebody without thinking in my head, that sounds stupid. You didn't conjugate that word right. You know, was that the right word? I was so, I was always critiquing myself. And that was part of, you know, my growth, which was having conversations and staying out of my head and making sure that there was one dialogue going on. The one you and I are having, Bobby Sue, I'm not in my head right now going, that was a dumb answer. (laughs) You know, like, why'd you ask, you know, like, why'd you say that? Should you have said that? It's, I'm being present in this moment. And that just means getting out of my head and going back to the, you know, how we, we men and women conversation. The dialogue in our head is always negative, stupid question. You know that why'd you ask, why'd you ask it that way? Why did why'd you answer it that way? And I just believe men don't do that. I believe they can have that one dialogue and be pretty present. Most men and most women. Yeah. And I, but I also, you know, you brought up the other aspect of it, which is men inherently are born. I'm using quotes around everything I'm saying right now. Men, men are inherently born with a vast and deep knowledge of sports. It is in their DNA. Uh, but, you know, so if they ask a dumb question, eh, they're tired. Eh, they're having an off day. Yeah. And then women, do you even like sports? Yeah, you don't know sport. It, I always knew this was a, you were a fraud. You know, it, who, who wrote your question for you? Right. And God forbid, God forbid, you happen to know somebody from outside the sport, but get married or date. And then, of course, you were just in it for the dudes. Yeah. And, you know, I know I know a woman that that happened with and she was eviscerated, mm-hmm. um, which was really, really unfortunate. And I was probably part of eviscerating her at that stage mm-hmm. in my life. Right. Without yeah. knowing the full story, without having the um, the acceptance um, of of people and lives and and what have you, um, so you know. But because we're on such a a constant um, fine line of acceptance and not within our own freaking career industry, and and it's the same. You know, it, I think people in your type of role when it's, you know, a sideline reporter or an anchor or in sports media are the most visual um, and obvious. Uh, I don't want to say victims, but I guess victims of that. And, yeah. but it, but it trickles throughout the rest of the industry as well. You know, yeah. I get, do you even like football? <laughs> and I, and I just look at them and I'm like, like, and I have a flat out say, they're like, I mean, so would you like watch football growing up? I'm like, yeah, I grew up in New England. What the hell do you think I do on Sundays? What, what, exactly. What else would I be doing? Well, it wasn't a quarantine. Like girls, you know, like, sorry, you do not come in to watch the Patriots play. But I will say, you know, and it's funny because people were like, oh, well, I mean, like, what do you know? How do you know about this team? And I'm like, I honestly, I don't. But I know how the business works. And that's what I need to know. And I'm okay with that. I'm not going to, you know, I had, I was in sport management in my undergrad and there were all these guys who knew all these stats about everything and da, 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 da. And yes, there are definitely positions within sport where that is necessary, right? Absolutely. There are others 
that that's not quite as necessary and you could still be really good at your job and deserving of your job without that knowledge. And here's the thing. I know, you know, as a young reporter, I thought I had to know every single, you know, X's and O's and, and every stat and, you know, and who won what championship or MVP in what year. And, and that's how we were quiz. So you really did have to know that. But um, I am so not impressed with anybody who throws out a stat or, you know, we can all Google it and, you know, in, in 0.2 seconds. And to me, that's for so many years, I fought what made me really good at my job, which was what, which are all my strongest, probably like my strongest um, traits as a woman is, is listening and is wanting to get somebody to open up and trust and building those relationships and getting to know somebody and getting them to trust me with their story. You know, I, it's, that's the biggest responsibility uh, you know, in my world, which is to be trusted with somebody's story. There's just, I, I, that's the biggest weight I carry. And I just know that eventually again, getting, you know, to that good point in my life when I really, when it all clicked for me, which was, I, I don't need to, it doesn't make me special to know stats. It doesn't make me special to break down the three, four versus the four, three. And by the way, that's not my job. I'm not the analyst. We have one of those. But what makes me really good at my job is getting to know stories and getting to know these players, getting them to say things they've never said to anyone else, getting them to um, feel things that they've never talked about or, or have never felt before, never gone that deep before, is to talk about how this platform that they have right now has shaped them as a person and as a player. So, you know, the biggest, I, I've always looked at it where my analyst job you know, who I travel with is, is, you know, the one I travel with now, Daryl Johnson, who's, you know, one of my favorite human beings. He's a three-time Super Bowl champion. He, he's got the sport down, you know, like he's pretty good in that area. He knows it, but what can I bring that Daryl isn't going to be focused so much on? And that's the relationship part. So if there's something going on in a team, if it's between teammates, if it's between coaches, if it's teammates and coaches, I hope that Daryl goes, let me call Laura and find out what's going on over there because he knows I know the heart of that team, 32 teams, you know, that we have to. And so that's what I learned, which was why am I so hell bent on trying to fit in with everybody and what their perception is of being a sports broadcaster when I know that's not what makes me stand out. Well, and it goes back, you know, this is a good way to circle back to kind of where we started today, which is just bringing the humanity back. Right. Mm -hmm. And so in an era of stick to sports, you know, being able to bring the humanity back into sport and and to and particularly in a sport where. There are helmets covering and and padding covering every inch of the person. And Mm -hmm. so people don't become familiar with the individuals because they can't see them as easily as they can see a LeBron. Right. And, and, and so bringing, being able to bring out their personalities and bring out their backstories and, and talk about what is going on currently and putting faces to those stories is really important. I would be like, I I think about it all the time now, you know, just if, if I wasn't allowed to talk about uh, everything that I'm talking about with women and And I'm very fortunate that people are asking 
and in a position where I certainly don't have to, you know, I can just shut up and do my job. Um, but, but I feel like it's my responsibility that I have a bunch of young women looking up to me and they look up to me because of what I do. And I feel like that's that, that I'm not doing it right because I want them to want my job, but I want them to want to, I want them to go. I want to do it the way Laura has. I want not my path because that's my path and not theirs, but I want them to see how much time I take on building relationships, how much time goes into preparation, how much time goes into, you know, establishing your work ethic, how much time goes into treating people right and in treating other women right. I I want them to see all that, not just me standing on a sideline. And so I look at that, you know, on a tiny spectrum and go, now if I had the platform that these players do, oh, I hope I'd be the type that would use it. I hope that I would want to use that platform for good, whatever your good is. And I just know, you know, having, you know, the same, you know, the same way you are with your players in your building, the biggest privilege of mine is I go through 32 buildings and every Friday I'm with the home team. So meeting with players and coaches every Saturday, we're at a hotel and meeting with, you know, the visitors. I have the most incredible conversations that I wish I could say on air on Friday and Saturday. And sometimes it's about football, but not often. It's about who they are as men, as husbands, as fathers as leaders, as activists, as men trying to figure it out and men trying to work this all out, you know, with everything, especially now with the kneeling, these are some of the most, um, some of the most uh, giving, compassionate um, uh, men of, of charity, of, of, of philanthropy. It just, I, I am so amazed every weekend when I talk to these men. And how much they do besides play football. This generation gets it differently. And that's been such a hard thing to watch is watching, you know, a side of people talk about, talk about the kneeling, like it's about the anthem or the veterans, which it's not. And it never has been. There are so many things that I wanted to talk to you about, but it would take, I feel like it would take us days. So (laughs) in an effort to save my listeners a little bit, um, why don't you? Tell me what you do by way of self-care. Hmm. Um, my self-care these days is probably pretty easy. Um, and only so because I work so hard to get to it, mm-hmm. um, as we've discussed. But my self-care is getting out of my head and just living and loving life. You know, I'm, I am so grateful for, I'm so grateful for every moment right now. And that's, you know, that's the moments of bliss and that's for the tough moments that I know are going to be lessons and, and not shortchanging any of them, you know, making sure I'm feeling the hard stuff just as much as I'm, as I'm feeling the good stuff. And, um, I don't take for granted where I'm at in my life, you know, that, that my self-care is any moment I get to spend with my husband and with my puppy. Um, and in Nashville, you know, our new city as we started this new chapter together. And I never want that to sound like, ah, you know, like, you know, that my self-care is just being happy, how easy that is, because it's not. And that took a long time, you know, to go from, I don't know what makes me happy, nothing makes me happy, to, oh my gosh, I want to make sure I'm, I'm, I'm in every moment of this happiness and I'm grateful for it. So my self-care is gratitude. My self-care is making sure that I acknowledge it 
and to make sure that I'm doing the work in the middle of it and not waiting till uh, I'm having a bad day or a hard day to make sure that I'm doing the work in the good days too, um, to make sure that I, I probably have less highs and lows these days and really try to always make sure that I'm doing something every day um, to be present and to do the work and to be thankful for. Do you meditate? I've gone through stages where I have, my husband does and, and depends on that. I don't think, I, I think meditation with me was always sort of more of, it felt really good, but my mind would wander. And I know you're not supposed to judge the wandering. You're supposed to go with it. But going back to, you know, the very beginning, then you feel like you're, you know, like, I'm going to do this right. And it's not right. So I won't do it. Yeah. But um, I think, I think instead of meditation, I'd call it more just, I, you know, when I, when I sit outside and look at the lake and, and I count my blessings and literally do, you know, and, and, I, and we're both really good at that of what are you thankful for today? Yeah, that's period. But what are we thankful for at this moment? Um, and I probably would go more to writing than the meditation. Sure. Um, it, that that that's probably my biggest thing of writing down how I feel and what I've learned from it. Um, that's probably my meditation. I know a lot of people who um, do gratitude journaling and, um, I, you know, I've been on and off with journaling my whole life and I don't. I don't know. I think again, like I just get so caught up in the, how am I supposed to do this? What am I supposed yeah, to write yeah. about? Um, yeah. and I'll, even with my job, you know, I've found that I will, I'll get so caught up in formatting that it will almost paralyze me from getting the real work done. Like getting mm. the, the words on the page for the stupid contract I'm supposed to write because I'm concerned about how it's supposed to look. Or yeah. how it's supposed to be laid out. That's been something over the last couple of years that I've learned to just try and figure out. <laughs> Isn't that funny? And again, so it's just that paralyzing fear. And it comes from such a great place of like, what, you know, why, why is this paralyzing me? Like, I want to do this. Yeah. Um, and I think the best thing is just, is just doing it. You know, it's in, with the journaling I've gone through different phases where it probably reads like a journal, you know, really does read like a story if someone picked it up. But I've gone through phases, especially like I know, you know, I did this when my mom was was dying, that I would just write. And it, and I found it recently and I hadn't read it, you know, in 20 years. And I just started laughing, crying because there were things I wrote that I was like, oh, my gosh, I forgot about that. And all I'd write was like giant, uh, giant silver freezer with cups of jello and <laughs> was a journal. So I wasn't writing why, but I just, I'm so happy I wrote that down because it reminded me of a memory of, you know, over 20 years ago of this huge freezer and these jello cups that, you know, I would go steal for my mom. And so it's, you know, even that, but I think about, I wasn't in a place there to journal because I didn't want to really talk about or write about my feelings, mm -hmm. but I'm so happy I wrote something. Yeah. And uh, so I, that, that sometimes helps me with the writing is just sometimes it's in, in, you know, in journal form or in story form. And sometimes it's just feels like you're throwing up, you know, you're just throwing up words, but at the end of the day, you don't know where those words are going to take you. Yeah. And, you know, for someone like you, you know, who, who has a journalism background, I mean, you never know what reading one of those can trigger in you later on to maybe, you know, help 
with a new book or, or something. Um, you know, not that we need to add more to your plate right now, but you know, please do. I love a full plate. Speaking of your full plate, um, Buya, how old is he now? (laughs) Buya is seven months old. (laughs) And, uh, Buya has been a blessing in many ways. Um, when I first was dating Mike, um, I had two senior Rhodesian Ridgebacks and they were handful and handful and Ridgebacks are more like cats. They're a little more aloof. They're not a lab. Like, you know, that Mike wasn't going to walk in the house and they were all going to be buddies. <laughs> and so it took them, the three of them, you know, a minute to all sort of, you know, find peace with each other. And and one of the greatest things, um, you know, when I when I really felt hard for him was one night, the older dog, Jack, um, we had to take him to the emergency room and we brought him home and it's like four in the morning. And all of a sudden, in the middle of the night, you know, I just I, I, I hear Mike talking and, and he's petting Jack and he's at the foot of the bed. And I just hear him saying, I love you, Jack. I love you. And he hadn't told me he loved me yet. And so I loved that because I knew one, he could say, I love you. Yeah. And two, he fell in love with my dog. And so it was just like, oh, like, how wonderful is this? And, and so what happened was when Jack, you know, pretty soon after that, couldn't use his legs and it's, you know, an 80 pound, 90 pound dog, Mike had to carry him everywhere and gave that dog six months more of life. Cause I could never have, you know, carried him downstairs and, you know, and, and he was coming home every hour on the hour to turn him around, you know, so he could, he wasn't getting bed sores. Oh my God. And so he really, he changed those puppies lives, you know, he gave them life at the end of their lives. And I never thought I'd get another dog again. Um, I just, my heart couldn't do it. And, um, and Mike really wanted a puppy. And I just thought, how do I not give him a puppy? You know, he was so good to my seniors. And so it was a big deal when our hearts finally healed enough from losing the other guys that we got him and very early on, it might've been, I mean, it might, it was right after Stuart died. And it was one of the first things where I said, what do you think about Booyah for a name? And he loved it. And we have more fun, Bobby Sue, like just anytime we're at a park or we're anywhere and you just yell Booyah and you just see other people react, you know, and everybody <laughs>, laughs. And, and it's just like, it's just such a wonderful name. And he has that exact spirit. Um, which is what I love. Like he's just, he's such a booyah and it just brings us so much joy in this house to walk around the house yelling booyah. I, when you first got him and you announced him to the world on Twitter, (laughs) I mean, it was, and on Instagram, it was just hilarious. And I just remember thinking, what an amazing name for Uh, a pup. uh, And like, you look at his face, he's got this sweet little like kind of mischievous but sweet face and and you're like yep you totally are a booyah (laughs) yeah he totally is it's perfect and again i can tell the sports fan and non-sports fans in two seconds it's always fun to you know like the people who just like have a twinkle in their eye and and it gets to bring up great stories because you know some people will be like oh stuart scott so it's just it's a very selfish name that gives us joy because it, you know, it keeps Stuart around in our house and just out in the universe when people hear the name. So yeah. it's a, it's a gift for everybody, including Buya, who has a lot to live up to. And then like, you know, who knows you're around like a basketball court and someone says it, not even knowing it's a dog's name. <laughs> right. A hundred percent. And we can't understand why a dog is running onto the court. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> 
Um, 100%. Tell everyone where they can get information about Galvanize um, and where they can follow you and Booyah. <laughs> and uh, I've had more friends who are like, please make Booyah an account, which I will not do. But um, it's funny because going back to like our growth and, and um, normally I would get my Galvanize website, but I have a new website. And it is lauraoakman.com. And that has taken 25 years to say yes to. Um, I never, ever, ever thought I would have my own website. I've always believed in just the work and not the person who did the work showcasing. And um, I work with two incredible women. And one of them, Lori Berlin, uh, was an ESPN producer for a long time. And we traveled, uh, you know, in similar circles in CNN. When I was at CNN, she was at ESPN. And we were covering Michael Jordan and the Bulls then and traveling. And I always was like, wow, I kill to have a woman producer. I never have. And Lori and her partner and her good friend, Cindy, started this media company. And she pitched me hard. They you know, said, you need your own website. And I kept saying, I'm not comfortable with it. I'm comfortable with Galvanize. And they kept saying, this is part of your story now. You know, that it's not just, it's now you're speaking. Now you're doing this coaching. Um, you've got to have a site that is about and they were pretty wonderful and, and and built me this site that is all about me and yet doesn't feel like it's all about me. And that was that was the goal. So I say all of that thing again, it's lauraoakman.com. And that's all of my work. And that's where all the galvanize information is. So if anybody wants to find out about galvanize, um, see what exactly it is, videos of, of what it is, it's all there. Great. And then on social media, where can people follow along? Uh, at Laura Oakman and at Galvanize Life, Life L I F as in Frank E. And uh, that's on both Twitter and Instagram. Twitter and Instagram, yes. Great. And, and even if they, and I'm telling you, everybody thinks this is all for you know young twenty somethings, but my last four boot camps, we range from 17 years old to 44 years old. So Galvanize is not just for uh, for my wonderful 20 somethings it's it's all about confidence and it's all about empowering women so i hope that anybody who follows sees that it's not just oh, i'm too old for this um it's it's very much just a great organization for women empowering women our whole motto is girls compete women empower and it's changed my life so um i would uh so I am excited to, I'm excited for this new site and excited for um, all the social stuff going on right now as we continue to build. Yeah, the site looks great. I saw it this morning. Um, Thank you. And I was, I was like, that didn't exist before. <laughs> um, it still makes me a little nervous. No, I think it's great. It looks great. And, you know, it, uh, it flows really well. So it's tell the women that they did a great job. Uh, and, you're welcome. And, um, you know, for listeners, um, Laura and Galvanize, uh, you know, whether it's the organization or her are always putting out really good content, um, you know, related to women in sports, um, women in uh, sports media um, and and some of the other issues that we've we touched upon today. Um, but always, you know, you're always so positive with other people that it um it i i love when when you're tweeting at some of your women from galvanize or um you know start a conversation about uh women in sports media it, it's always really interesting to follow along 
Um, I appreciate it. I'm, I've done it both ways. I've done it without women. I've done it with women. And, and I'm telling you, it's adding this group of amazing women, including yourself, has, has changed my world in so many beautiful ways. Um, for so long, I said, I'm, you know, a guy's girl and thought that was something I was proud of. And I am so thankful to have incredible women in my life. I agree. I was the same way. I scoffed at the idea of Greek life and, um, you know, never really had a big core group of girlfriends until law school. And, Mm -hmm. and then, you know, over the last probably five years have really, uh, embraced the sisterhood. Uh, it's great, isn't it? It is. It is. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you coming on today. I so appreciate you having me. This is, this is run the gamut, Bobby Sue. I have enjoyed this (laughs) conversation immensely. Thank you so much to Laura for coming on. I am just so grateful to have this woman in my life now. Um, she's just fantastic. And I hope you all enjoyed this episode. Um, sorry, I got a little teary and I hope I didn't make any of you cry. (laughs) Um, I, uh, yeah, I just, I left it in. I, I felt like being vulnerable was okay. So I would love to hear your thoughts on it. Um, please make sure you are following us on social media. We're trying to engage more. So follow us on Twitter, on Instagram and on Facebook at LTPF pod. Um, and you can always email us LTPF pod at gmail.com. And then of course, make sure you are subscribing, rating and reviewing on your podcatcher of choice, but we really like Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, because that's an important one too. And then, of course, RadioInfluence.com or LTPFPod.com. Please give us some reviews and ratings, and then maybe some more cool people like y'all will get to hear these. It's always interesting how people come across the podcast. Hope you have a great week. This is a Crush Performance Quick Fix on Radio Influence. When we look at creating opportunity for these young players, you know, it's one thing to create the talent, but it's another thing to showcase it because at the end of the day, you have to impress somebody. When you're ready, when the time is right, you've got to impress somebody. And the gatekeepers of sport are the scouts. They have the key to let you in the door as a young, talented player. And... I think on that note, it's really important that we get an understanding of exactly what the scouts are looking for, because I don't think we have a good idea in general. So today we're going to talk with Bob Green, the director of player development for the Edmonton Oilers, about what events like the Helenka Gretzky Cup mean for a sport like hockey, but more generally uh, for young up and coming talent. The events are very, very important. Preparing for those events are very important. Playing in the big arenas is a great experience. But getting in front of all those eyes and what are those eyes looking for? It's going to be a great conversation as we shed some light on what the gatekeepers are looking for. It's a real important conversation. Crush Performance with the Crusher, Jeff Crushell, can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Play, and RadioInfluence.com.